Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the music from the 2005 film War of the Worlds. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Believe it or not, E.T. the Extraterrestrial was initially going to be a much more violent and darker film than it turned out to be. Steven Spielberg and his team envisioned a movie about aliens who visit Earth and terrorize a California family. At the end of that film, one of the aliens was left behind and turns out to be a friendly alien. That turned out to be the basis for E.T., and though we might never see the movie that Spielberg initially planned, he always wanted to come back to the idea of bad aliens on Earth to counter the good ones he created in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That concept finally came to fruition in 2005 with the remake of the 1953 film War of the Worlds, which was adapted from the 1898 novel by H.G. Wells. Though it wasn't an original idea from Spielberg, he put his stamp on the work while giving us one of his most violent fictional films ever. In order to make this film a reality, Spielberg brought in his usual collaborators, including composer John Williams. And in order to make this episode of The Baton the best it can be, I'm bringing in a collaborator. Joining me now is Eduardo Victoria. Thank you for having me, Jeff. It's a great pleasure to be on the show. Tell us about your musical background. Well, for as long as I can remember, I'd always loved music in some ways, especially from movies. Movies were a go-to pastime for my sisters and my dad, so by the time I was five, I'd probably seen more movies than most kids my age. Uh, coming from a Mexican family, music was always a big part of our daily lives and culture as it is to so many across the world, but I recall being transfixed by orchestral music and was always fascinated by why it sounded so different from everything else my family listened to. It was a real it was a world I really wanted to discover but wasn't quite sure how to how to do it. Um, it's no hyperbole to say that my life changed forever when recruiters for the band program at my elementary school in Oxnard, California, entered my fourth grade classroom and asked if anyone was interested in signing up to play an instrument. At the time, I was obsessed with Jurassic Park and loved the score. Immediately, I thought about the possibility of getting to perform that music and other film scores, and I haven't looked back since. In Ventura, Coun in Ventura County, uh, Band programs are still prevalent, so I played saxophone, clarinet, and flute all through high school and junior college. It was when I started taking classes at Ventura College that I began to study composition as I went through the music theory program. In addition to my classes, I picked up lessons and any opportunities to learn wherever I could from friends, private teachers, and constantly reading textbooks and manuals. After a few years of studying and playing in a few local bands, I was trying to figure out what the next step in my career would be. By this point, I knew I wanted to be a composer. Then by chance, I met Christopher Young at a Brian Wilson concert in Los Angeles. We immediately hit it off and bonded over our love for the Beach Boys and Brian's music. 
Chris composed the score for Hellraiser, The Rum Diary, Rounders, Swordfish, and most recently the updated take on Pet Cemetery. We struck up a friendship, and he encouraged me to move to L.A. to pursue film music, so not having finished school, I decided to try my chances and move to L.A. Even though my career is still very much in its infancy, I scored a few short films, two features, written a couple of chamber music works. Through all of that, my love for John Williams never waned. And here in L.A., we're very lucky that we have Maestro Williams conducting the L.A. Philharmonic every summer at the Hollywood Bowl. Well, this is fantastic. What are those two films that you scored? We have to hear the amazing music of Eduardo Victoria. Uh, that's uh, very kind of you. I haven't done anything near the level of a, of a Star Wars, but um, I did one feature called Dane Granger a couple years back that I believe you can find on a, on a DVD somewhere online if you Google the film. Another one is called New Hands, which I know they're currently finishing up at the moment. Um, I did some music for... Uh, a horror anthology called December. The segment I did was a fanta- for a fantastic director out here in L.A. named Amalia, who did a segment in the style of a giallo, which are those old Italian murder mysteries. Hopefully that'll be out at some point soon. And I have a thriller that was on the festival circuit called Sidewinder that I scored for another great director named T.K. Sham, who does a lot of work for the ABC series, The Rookie, but all that sort of happened when COVID hit, so I'm not too sure what's going on with that. Well, I hope Sidewinder gets a big theatrical release. We want to see your name in big letters on the big screen soon. Thank you. Thank you. I hope so as well. So let's get started on the discussion of War of the Worlds because we have a lot to discuss about the film and the score. So this would be the second of four films released in 2005 that featured a John Williams score. And Eduardo, I understand that you've managed to uncover some information that says Williams might have been composing music while he was still working on Revenge of the Sith. That's right. Williams had to begin writing the score before War of the Worlds had finished filming, something that had never occurred before in the history of his working relationship with Steven Spielberg. Most of the time, Williams is involved early in the process, but usually doesn't write music before he sees some cut of the entire film. This time, in order to make sure he had the score ready for recording in spring 2005, Williams had to see the first hour or so of the movie and then write that music. This leads me to believe that Williams would have continued to write music for War of the Worlds at any time that he was free to do so while recording the music for Revenge of the Sith with the London Symphony Orchestra in February. Well, I think the fact that Williams was unable to see the entire film from start to finish at once explains one reason, at least, why there is not a major theme running throughout the film. And it might be the first time in about three decades that Williams doesn't give us some thematic material for a person, place, or event in a film. But that's not to say that there aren't some interesting musical ideas in the score, but it really struck me as I watched the film to prepare for this episode that there wasn't a melody that ran through the film. So Tom Cruise makes his second appearance in a Steven Spielberg film, playing Ray Ferrier, a dock worker in New Jersey who has to take care of his two children when alien life forms attack Earth and viciously kill without warning or reason. There isn't a theme for Ray, or for his children, or for the alien attackers. And that's very odd, but it might have been a necessary choice during the composing process. I do believe this was a conscious decision on the part of Williams and Spielberg. 
by not giving the audience something to hold on to psychologically, the audience's sense of familiarity and comfort that might come from the recognition of something like a, a hero theme gets taken away. It's a very cerebral, cerebral and brilliant approach to amp up the horror of the film. Yes, you have a point there. So there is no music in many of the quieter moments, which subconsciously kept me from relaxing a bit between the action scenes. It's a bold choice, but I do wish there had been some kind of family theme like we got in Minority Report to give us something to connect to musically. I'm also reminded of the love theme that Jerry Goldsmith wrote for The Omen and used very well to bring home the love between Lee Remick and Gregory Peck and made us feel the proper sadness when Lee Remick died. Even though we're not getting the typical John Williams slate of hummable themes, the score is not a massive departure compositionally for him because it contains many atonal, 12-tone, and serialist elements that can be heard all over his film scores and especially in his concert music. He, even the stuff that is considered to be the complete opposite stylistically from War of the Worlds. The ending of the Raiders' March has horns playing very tight, dissonant harmonies. The trombones uh, at the end of the Superman March play an almost 12-tone-like counter melody. And the whole score for Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone has some of the strangest constructed chords I've ever seen. The reason why any of those examples don't sound bizarre to our ears is because of how well contextualized it is. And if you take that even further, I remember talking about the weird way Williams finishes Aunt Marge's waltz in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and the chords are weirdly constructed there, but still sounds acceptable to our ears. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's another great example. After studying the score for War of the Worlds closely, one of the elements I found woven through the music is a variation of the DSE Ray melody. Jeff, you've highlighted this melody many times on the podcast, so I don't think we need to give the listeners uh, another lesson about it. But in short, it's a motif that's meant to symbolize death or impending death. One of the most compelling uses of it comes at what should be a happy moment when Ray and his daughter, Rachel, arrive at the place where Ray's ex-wife is and we think is a place of safety. The DSE Ray variation is stated on a solo horn at the beginning of the cue, creating a somber feeling to what we're seeing on screen. This is supposed to be a moment of joy, but perhaps the music is telling us that the fact that Ray and Rachel made it out alive after everything we've seen is more than enough.
My favorite use of the Dies Irae comes in the chilling scene when Rachel sees a bunch of dead bodies floating in the river. It's photographed very well as we see, at first, just one body floating down the river, then a cut to Rachel's horrified face, then a camera move to reveal dozens more bodies following. I'm not sure how these people died since all the people who perished before were pulverized into dust by the aliens. I don't know, their blood might have been harvested, as we learn later, is a plan by the aliens, but that's not explained at that time. No matter because the music makes the scene chilling because of its performance on the violin. I should note that the Dies Irae isn't quoted outright here, but you can feel its presence. John Williams fans are aware of many classical influences on his scores, from Wagner to Rossini. As a matter of fact, Jeff, you mentioned Aunt Marge's Waltz earlier, and that piece is almost certainly inspired by Rossini's Thieving Magpie Overture. In War of the Worlds, it's Russian composer Igor Stravinsky who provides the biggest inspiration for the tone of the score. Williams' frantic writing for brass, ostinato strings, and usage of rhythmic passages is obviously drawn from Stravinsky's ballet, The Rite of Spring. A little bit of history about The Rite. It's become infamous because of the public reaction to it in 1913. The music was considered so sensational that the audience at the premiere began to get raucous to the point where police had to be called in to control the crowd. It's the string ostinato from the adolescent dances near the beginning of the rite that finds its way into the big scene when the aliens reveal their tripod killing machines and use powerful heat rays to turn people into dust. The orchestration of this cue is so interesting. I've looked at the scores as performed by the Hollywood Studio Orchestra and it requires the usual elements, but there are a lot of string instruments in use, none of them violins. The scene score calls for 24 violas, 12 celli, and 10 basses. That means we're going to get some low, heavy rumbles. There will also be some female voices uh, in this scene, which Williams said was employed to, quote, give us some feeling here that a zap just doesn't quite have. You recognize some pain in it, even though the victims are not privileged enough to say ouch. So that's enough talking. Let's play the music. Take note of the use of the DS Ray variation in the upper strings as the brass begin to begin the very creepy and rhythmic ostinato.
The heat rays come out and the carnage begins here. This cue is quite possibly the scariest thing Williams has ever written. In the featurette on the disc, he describes the scene as one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen. And that's saying a lot because, as you know, he's had to write music for shark attacks, melting faces, and a presidential assassination. But I agree, the scene is one of Spielberg's most gut-wrenching moments. What is most amazing about the scene is the way the sound effects and the music work hand in hand, which is not typical in most sci-fi films. In the featurette about the music on the Blu-ray, Williams said, There are a few sections, a few cuts to the alien machines where the orchestra does a grand gesture of the classic monster film. You can really hear it in the scene with the aliens when Williams gives us an homage to King Kong with a strong brass as the lasers continue to do more damage. And the scene almost immediately after the first attack is my absolute favorite in the film. And I've always wanted to know how it was accomplished, but at the same time, I don't think I want to know to kind of ruin the whole illusion of it. So Ray takes Rachel and his son, Robbie, away from the second alien attack with a stolen minivan. The trip involves Ray driving on a road littered with stalled cars while his daughter is screaming in fear and his son is pushing for answers about the attack. It's all done in one seemingly long two-minute take as the camera weaves in and out of traffic, zooms into close-ups, and almost feels like it's inside the car a couple of times. 
Janusz Kaminski, who became Spielberg's main cinematographer after Schindler's List, achieves a lot of trickery here that has you wondering how it was done. The music is just as urgent and frenetic as the car drives along, with strings and buzzing brass providing fuel for the scene, but never overpowering it. It has a rhythm that remains the most memorable piece of music from the film for me. You hardly notice the music for most of the scene, but it's there, getting under your skin.
I think this sequence is a great example as to the power of the collaboration between Spielberg and Williams. First of all, from the moment we start to get dialogue in the van to the very end of their conversation, it's shot in one long take, as you mentioned, Jeff, moving in and out of the car. Over and around it, the camera truly takes on an omnipotent eye over what's happening to the family. Secondly, the music, as we hear it in the film, which is presented a little bit different for this cue than it is on the album, uh, but we, we get this unrelenting rhythmic string line that carries us through the whole scene in both versions. It's constant motion, lots of muted brass, providing a, an unsettlingly bright sound over a dark texture. All that said, it somehow manages to be subtle. I, I looked at the scores, I've watched the scene, and somehow I still don't understand how Williams did it. It's just part of his magic, I suppose. But he takes a cue that would otherwise attract a lot of attention to itself and keeps it simmering away just under the surface of the scene. Just another reason why we just love him. We don't know how he does it, but he does it. Absolutely. Before we go any further with the score, I want to go back to the beginning and the opening narration by Morgan Freeman. What a great addition to the film, because I always like to think that Morgan Freeman is the president of the United States, just as he was in Deep Impact, giving a speech in the Rose Garden about the aliens. And underneath it is a great electronic cue by Williams that lets us know that the movie and the score will not be your typical sci-fi thriller. What's great is that Williams knows better than to talk over Morgan Freeman.
And then we get the titles appearing on film with a little bit of a nod to James Newton Howard's work on The Fugitive. So James Newton Howard did the exact same thing when the titles came up for The Fugitive. And I don't know if anyone else has used the same technique before. Well, you know, Williams did write something more traditional in the orchestral sense for the opening, but it wasn't used. So why do you think they went with the decision to go with the synthesizer instead? That's a great question. If you look back on Williams' career, he frequently writes parts for synthesizers and includes them as an orchestral section, especially in the sci-fi epics he's written for. The alternate prologue hasn't been officially released as far as I know, but in looking at the scores, a few of the elements made it into the version used in the film, including the melody that's played on the synth just before Morgan Freeman's narration begins. What I think happened is that Williams wrote two prologues, one being very synth-heavy and another relying more on the colors of the orchestra itself to create the intrigue and mystery. He then most likely showed both versions to Spielberg and left it up to him to choose which version he wanted to put in the film. Uh, I heard a story from one of the musicians who played on the main title for The Adventures of Tintin that Williams wrote three pieces of music that could be a main title for that film, and he left it up to Spielberg to pick which one he liked best for the film. So from a personal standpoint, have you ever had to write more than one musical choice for a scene in advance and then let the director choose which one makes it into the film? There have been situations where I was looking at a picture that could be interpreted several different ways. How I handled it, at least how I've done up to this point in my career is to actually have a conversation with the director first and try to find out um, what it is that they're really trying to say with their film. But if the filmmakers are more open to trying different things and they actually want to see the different possibilities realized, you can make a pretty great sounding demo in a short amount of time these days thanks to things like sample libraries and digital audio workstations. The process of scoring a movie is so involved uh, and fast at times that it boggles my mind that Williams still writes at the piano with a pencil and paper. It's absolutely incredible. Yes, it must be a blessing to write music in the 21st century now. So in Act 2 of the film, Spielberg and Williams had another big decision to make. In the scene when Ray's stolen minivan is attacked by a mob, there's no music playing over it. But Williams did compose something that is a frantic showstopper, and I wanted to highlight it because this really is a great piece of music. The music cue here is very dissonant, reminiscent of some of the music Williams wrote for the attack on the shark cage in Jaws. What both of those scenes share in common is there is an intense frenetic energy, both to what we see on screen and hear in the music. In Jaws, Hooper has just dropped his spear containing the poison he was going to use to kill the shark. He desperately spins in the cage trying to find where it had fallen to just as the shark begins to ram the cage. 
In War of the Worlds, the family suddenly finds themselves surrounded by a mob of people who try to take their car by force, breaking windows with their bare hands and beating the family senseless to incapacitate them. Both of those scenes have very similar tremolo runs where the string section is playing very quick ascending patterns of notes while they're doing this technique where they're quickly moving their bow back and forth. We even get some of those same long upper violin lines that flow above all the musical chaos underneath, just like the shark cage attack in Jaws. To understand what was going on with the picture, I tried to think almost as a music editor and went back to Williams' handwritten sketches for the film to find out more about the music for this scene. After doing some detective work, I found that the first half of the cue more or less lines up with the action on screen, but as the scene goes on, cuts in the picture are acknowledged in the music seconds too late or register no changes at all. This leads me to believe that after the music cue was recorded, further changes and edits were made to the scene, leading to Spielberg and Williams deciding to scrap the music altogether. Now, as a composer myself, I feel that the music written for this moment is very redundant from a story perspective. 
With no score, the scene viciously demonstrates the panic, fear, and terror as to how other people can be unforgivingly cruel when any sign of relief in a moment of horror is present. No score here gives the scene a realism that goes beyond the events we've seen so far in the film. So I've seen the video uh, with music playing over this scene, and I do like the music in parts of it, but I agree that the music almost takes away from the point of the scene, because these aren't aliens that are attacking Ray and his kids. These are actual humans pushed to horrifying limits. So this was the correct choice to leave out the music, as great as the music was. But I am glad that the music for the big scene on the ferry remains. It revives that pulsing and churning in the strings, and even brings back those female voices. The churning strings begin once the people see an alien machine in the distance and rush to board the ferry. Ray and his kids are on the ferry, but the chaos continues, especially in the music. female voices come in as we see a machine ready to attack from underwater. 
And here's a brief moment with Crazy Brass as Ray and others get pushed underwater. This is cool. Here's the DSE array again as we see the machines now picking up humans and collecting them. And there's a lot of energy in that five-minute piece of music for what I think is the best attack scene in the movie. Now, I wasn't sure if I wanted to talk about the sequence with Tim Robbins' character in the basement because it's the one part of the movie I feel could be cut and still make a good movie. The only reason I think it's worth watching is because of the moment when the aliens send a probe into the basement to search for humans. Every time I feel myself holding my breath a little and I was surprised that there was music in this scene.
And then there's the scene in the basement with two aliens walking around while Tim Robbins and Tom Cruise struggle with the shotgun. Every time there's a cut to Tim and Tom struggling with the shotgun silently, we get the string sawing away in a psycho-like manner. The basement sequence reminds me so much of the cat and mouse style chase between Tim Lex and the Velociraptors in Jurassic Park. The music accompanying both of those scenes has these moments of peaks and valleys where the music is staying pretty subtle and quiet. And then at just the right moments, Williams knows when to use music to take it to the next level. There's one scene earlier in the film when... Williams makes a big stylistic departure from all the danger music we've heard up to this point. It happens when Robbie first entertains the idea of joining the army to take down the alien machines. Ray is trying his best to step up and be a father, but Robbie does not want his parenting and vies to join the fight. Rachel is afraid that if Robbie leaves, Ray will be incapable of taking care of her. The direction at the top of the score for this moment actually says uh, triste, informing the musicians to perform with musical expressions of sadness, a reflection of the troubled relationship between Ray and his two children in this moment of the film. The piece has a very luscious and dark sound to it. In place of violins, once again, we get 24 violas playing the upper parts of the harmonies. The music continues as we switch to later that night and the three drive past the crowd of refugees along the road just before the attack on the car. The music continues to highlight the sad emotion carrying us through this portion of the film.
Perhaps it was that lack of instantly identifiable John Williams signatures in this score that explains why he got little peer recognition for War of the Worlds. Perhaps the two remaining scores he would write in 2005 overshadowed everything he did with War of the Worlds. Or perhaps the film's so-so reception by critics and audiences kept the score from maintaining attention in award season. Like just about every Spielberg film, War of the Worlds made a profit, earning more than $200 million in the United States and almost $700 million worldwide. This marks the end of a very short but rather lucrative collaboration with Tom Cruise, who persuaded Spielberg to do both Minority Report and War of the Worlds. Of course, as we know, Tom Cruise remains the king of sci-fi blockbusters, and he's going to do more of them as the years go on. So to go back to that talk of lack of a peer recognition for the score to War of the Worlds, there was a big nomination coming John Williams's way in the form of a Grammy nomination for Best Instrumental Composition for the music for the fairy scene. I remember reading that when it was announced in winter 2005 and thinking that the music for the aliens' first appearance was the better choice for this nomination. But perhaps that music resonated with these responsible for the nomination more. In any case, the fairy scene did not turn out to be a winning composition for John Williams at the Grammys. It was nominated alongside Anakin's portrayal from Revenge of the Sith, and both lost to Billy Child's jazz composition, Into the Light. So John Williams managed to turn out two good scores for films released in summer 2005, and he got a nice break that summer before he had to start his next project. Instead of keeping himself busy with multiple conducting gigs around the country, as he often does during the summer, Williams stayed under the radar. He only conducted the Boston Pops in two concerts, and didn't keep his mind active by writing any short pieces, at least none that were published or performed. The rest was deserved, and needed, of course, because the final two projects coming up that fall really needed his complete attention. I'm anxious to get started on the next episode, which will dive into the score for the highly anticipated movie, Memoirs of a Geisha. So, Eduardo... This was really a wonderful journey through the score to War of the Worlds. I always thought of this score as an average entry into the Williams canon, but just as all of my co-hosts have done, you really made me understand how good this score is. Thank you very much for that. On just a final personal note, War of the Worlds is my favorite score by John Williams. I see it as a culmination of all his experience working with and studying some of the greatest minds of the 20th century. So to dive into it with this much detail and to look a lot of that, to look at a lot of the minutia of the score has been an absolute dream come true. So for that, Jeff, I, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Oh, that's great. Thank you. And as always, thanks to everyone for listening. You could find the baton, a John Williams musical journey anywhere you get your podcast. And I hope one of them is on iTunes. So you can leave a review there to convince others to tune in. As I said before, I'm very excited about next week's episode, and I hope you'll join me for it. Until then, the baton is down.